Hey there, listeners. Before we get started with the show today, I would just like to remind you that Dustin Timbrook and Luke Jacobson are registered representatives offering securities through First Allied Securities, a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Advisory services offered through First Allied Advisory Services and Presidio Capital Management Registered Investment Advisors. First Allied entities are under separate ownership from any other named entity. Past performance is no guarantee of future returns. Investing involves risk and possible loss of principal capital. No advice may be rendered by Presidio Capital Management unless a client service agreement is in place. Now please enjoy this episode. Hey, welcome everyone to the Presidio Perspective. I'm Dustin Tenbrook. Yeah, and I'm Luke Jacobson. Really happy to be here for series one of a new Presidio Perspective. New Presidio Perspective. Nice to be out of my guest room here and have some company. That's right. Have Luke next to me. This is great. Glad you guys can join us. Uh, Luke, I'm excited to get into these topics with you today. We'd we did a, I think, a good job narrowing the list. We had so much we wanted to talk about. Yeah, uh, 2020 was a pretty crazy year looking back, um, but there's lots to talk about. And first topic of today, market euphoria. Yeah, so uh, so what do you mean by that, market euphoria? Uh, well, so market euphoria, I think um, if anybody looks at the market this year, it's largely um, a very successful year for equities. Um, it's even been a fairly successful year for uh, for fixed income. And even um, even today, I think even in the crypto world, you're seeing lots of euphoria about new highs in crypto assets. We've seen uh, crazy amounts of SPACs and IPOs. Um, for those of you who've been paying attention, I think we've had um, $67 billion in, in IPOs this year, about 194 this year, and $64 billion in SPACs. And so we've seen um, substantial amounts of capital enter the market, um, and that's created uh, a lot of strong equity returns, and people are starting to be very concerned about euphoric expectations. I mean, earlier in the year, you know, it was all about questioning the market, you know, and kind of most of the comments I was hearing from people was the market has lost its perception or it, it doesn't make sense. Why is everything going up when seemingly everything is horrible? Businesses are shutting down, you know, and uh, and it seems like, you know, there's riots in the streets and what's going on and, and the market keeps going higher. So when you say market euphoria, Luke, are you, are you suggesting the markets, you know, at, uh, over overbought, too high? Um, no, not necessarily. I'd say that um, we're in the very first, maybe the end of the first stage of a brand new bull market. And um, at this point, uh, what is typical about this type of stage of a bull market is that um, it's represented by substantial multiple expansion that drives substantial equity returns. And that's what we've seen this year. We, uh, I think you considerably hear about um, very high multiples um, and very high returns. And so, yeah. And I, and I think what we've seen this year was the emergence of what Wall Street calls the retail investor, right? And so you've seen for the first time, Really, the retail investor, this collective group, whether it be through social media or Reddit chats, right? And you have Kramer mentioning these Reddit blogs, you know, a couple of times, I think last week, where there's now for the first time, it seems to be a power to the people with, with their power of, of voting what companies they like and, and can really actually make markets move. Right. Did you see um, just the other day you had uh, Massachusetts file a lawsuit against, I think it was Robinhood, right? Right. And um, they're out there saying that they want to protect the average investor, that Robinhood has come out and made investing like a game. 
And um, Robinhood seems to make more money by um, facilitating more transactions. So Massachusetts is saying that that's deceptive marketing and they're trying to curtail any um, excessive risk there. But that would just be one ingredient of what might create um, caution in some investors' eyes about market euphoria. And I guess what, what I would say is to take a step back and look from 30,000 feet. And I think it's really important to realize that we're in a new market cycle. Yeah, I, I did see that. In fact, I printed out a little article right before we came in here, Luke. And so, yeah, it, says, it looks like William Galvin, the secretary of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, uh, cites the company uses gamification strategies to manipulate customers, including through the promise of free stock and effects such as confetti raining on the screen of the app after a trade is placed. So I can um, just just visualize, you know, what's going on. And there's been this incentivized to kind of engage with the app and trade the app like you would if you created a video game or, right, or right. some other social media device, which is, you know, very different than what we preach as, you know, good investors and being long-term in the stock market and, and so forth. So, And so, you know, that also coincides with some very near-term IPOs that just came to the market. Um, um, one of them's a common um, kind of hotel room type facilitator that we've seen in the past. Many of you have probably used it on your app. And um, that particular share price went public at a price of X and doubled on the first trade in the day. These are not um, these are not returns that we typically see or expect in a um, a normal market market environment. But I think it's important to just take a step back and realize that that doesn't mean that we are in euphoric conditions for the market and we're due for some certain pullback. So that's a nice segue to our next topic on market rotation. So maybe this will help add some color as to what, Luke, your viewpoints are of different asset classes in the market. So we talked about market euphoria being maybe in some concentrated pockets of companies in the stock market. You mentioned IPOs and trading platforms, but you're also seeing some really other interesting things in the market. Right. So uh, maybe we can put up on the screen, we have a, um, a performance there we go. Talk we have, louder we have, into the mic. Talk, yeah, got it. Um, so we have a, a performance um, for the year. So you, if you can put that on, there we go. So, so it's really interesting if you can just take a look here at this particular table, um, which just jumps off the page. Is that uh, the S and P has had a fairly heroic year? When we think about normal S and P returns in a given year, we're thinking anywhere between high single digits to low double digits is what we've been returning for the last 10, 15 years. And if you look at the bottom of this table, it also shows the Barclays aggregate, which is the aggregate index of all effectively treasuries and corporate bond indexes. Yeah, the bonds of the U.S. Right. And even that index, um, given that we've had such massive uh, monetary stimulus bringing rates down, has created um, substantial returns even in the ag index. And I believe we have on here, you know, it's returned over 7% year to date as of yesterday. Yeah. And that drove, you know, that was with, with driving interest rates pretty low. And so I think what's interesting to see is how this is now changing here this quarter, right? Whether the stark difference is what we've seen in the fourth quarter, as we look ahead into 2021, you know, there's been, there's been a, a, a massive change. You've seen, you know, for the first time in a long time, international outperforming domestic. We've also since uh, October seen a rotation to value versus growth. Right. And so you've seen value companies now significantly outperforming growth companies since October one, um, if we look at uh, across the world. 
Right. I mean, we can we can talk about this probably all day, right? We have international versus domestic. We have cyclicals versus growth companies, momentum versus value. Um, I just I was just looking at um, you know China just reported their GDP numbers just the other day, and China's now ret- re- returned seven percent within their GDP figures and are back to positive fixed asset investment um, at a plus two percent year over year rate, um, and that's bringing a lot of concepts back into um, what, what what's what is going to come of our materials markets, our cyclical markets um, because of all of this monetary stimulus and. So, you know, to, to look back and think about fixed income. So fin- fixed income has returned a, a healthy return of 7% this year, which by our standards is almost double the return that we expect in a given year. It's been very, very healthy. So what do we think about sort of fixed income moving into next year? How do we think about that relative to other asset classes? Well, yeah, well, as we know, bonds have an inverse relationship to interest rates, right, which we know are going to likely stay low for a, a couple of years, but they also are going to be discounted with inflation. And so if you get, you know, maturities of money that your money is going to be paid back to you in the future, it might not be worth what you lent it, right? And so those are the kind of the driving forces behind fixed income. Um so and I don't want to get too much on the fixed income because I think we have a great segment on our next and on I believe it's January seventh is our next uh, next Presidio perspective where we're going to take a deep dive into that. But you also mentioned cyclicals, Luke, and I just want to kind of touch on what what companies cyclicals are. So these are companies that do really well when the economy is doing well, correct? Right. So these would be um, like restaurants, hotels, auto manufacturers, those right. kinds of, yeah. e- even very high capital intensive manufacturing type mis- businesses um, that you would think of that have been around for the last 50 to 100 years. And these names do, tend to do exceedingly well at the beginning of market expansions. Um, so you, you see a tick up in discretionary spending, right? And so it's it's when we see a healthy U.S. consumer also, right? Right, that's very very true. Healthy U.S. consumer and he- healthy businesses. Um, where you have just fixed asset investment and business investment across the board. Think about um, expanding manufacturing plants, or in this co- in this point, we're just simply turning them back on. So, and that's really it. Seems to me like right now in this moment of time, that's really all about stimulus, right? Because I mean, we we're going to talk about a vaccine here in a moment, but um, you know, if we if we look at the next month, two months, three months, you know, there's there's a lot of energy put around the stimulus because you're going to need that, right, for the cyclicals and those those to continue to perform. That's right. And and a lot of what we've had already, we've had substantial stimulus from the Fed, right? Jerome Powell even came out came out yesterday and said that he expected rates to be near zero uh, where they're at through 2023. So yeah. I'll just say that one more time. Rates near zero through 2023, which is um, a substantial backstop or foundation, if you will, for substantial growth and monetary stimulus into the economy. And I think that's what's really important to think about when we've moved into a new market environment. Right? Yeah. Uh, we're going to talk about this a lot next year, right? I mean, we, we've been in this zero interest rate environment, and that has major implications for the valuations of certain sectors of the stock market, right? Where some of the valuations seem out of control, but in a 0% interest world, it really, it allows some potential bubbles to maybe get created, has major implications on fixed income, real estate. So the talk of rates and inflation through 2021, as I can see, what's going to dominate the Presidio perspective, probably looking forward, right? <laughs> That's probably. And, and to be fair, for the last decade, we've talked about lower rates 
has the same mentality when it comes to interest rates and quantitative easing. So we don't we don't anticipate, at least at this moment, any that being any change. You just mentioned Powell a couple of times. It just, mm-hmm. You know, for anybody who's questioning that, um, you know, as far as the market's concerned, we we all expect that mm-hmm. Yellen would continue the policies that uh, Chairman Powell has done as well. Um, all right. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about 2021. And this was really hard to kind of narrow in on what topics we wanted to focus on, at least for this episode of our podcast. Um, but, you know, I think there's been some things in the headlines. So let's let's start off by talking about the vaccine. Um, many of you have been I've been reading up on this and watching this. And, and when we start to look at the projections uh, from the some of the smartest people uh, across the across the globe, um, I don't know, it's pretty encouraging. Uh, it, it, it very much so. And, and a lot of that's because we've just been through an, an event driven bear market and an event driven bear market is substantially different than what we remember from 2008 or even from 2000. So in an, an event driven market, we don't have a massive um, reset in, in fiscal scenarios because of the Fed uh, raising rates and resetting the economy, nor do we have the buildup of substantial asset bubbles. Um, say like we did in housing in 2008 that caused massive restructuring in certain industries. We had a very event-driven bubble. It was exogenous uh, from COVID. And those tend to be quickly, um, they, they, twen- they tend to appear very quickly and disappear very quickly, simply stated. Yeah. And, and you can make the argument that, you know, 9-11 and what followed from there, you know, certainly with, with fighting two wars and all the costs that, that we bear as a country for, for that event, the difference being that that event occurred during a uh, unhealthy week or, um, you know, decoupling economy versus a, a very strong economy like we had, you know, at the beginning of this year. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, so we found some interesting stuff on the vaccine, on the vaccine and, and how widely it's to be distributed. So mm-hmm. you, I think you have a graphic up there if you want to talk us through that, Luke. Sure. One of the most interesting things about this graphic, and this is given by Goldman Sachs Institutional Research um, is that 50% of the population will have the vaccine available to them by April. And that's just right around the corner. In fact, that's just right after so the end of Q1. 50% of the U.S. population? 50% of worldwide population. Worldwide population will have a vaccine available mm-hmm. or will have a vaccine? Um, have it available. So okay. we're just making assumptions that within this data, it makes assumptions that, that people they take, will it. take it or not take it. <laughs> right. I understand that there's a lot of concepts about taking and not taking it. Yeah. Um, but really what it means is, is that there's a whole change in mindset on how to think about COVID, how to think about its um, the gating factor that it brings on the economy and world economy. And there's an answer to a lot of the problems we have. Do you know who the chief scientist of the U.S. government's Operation Warp Speed is? <laughs> Uh, no. Okay. <laughs> well, that person uh, suggests that a vaccine development pro- uh, said that the seventy um, percent of Americans are likely to become immune, immunized, and herd immunity achieved by May of this coming year. Interesting. So they they are part of warp speed. So it's getting out of there pretty quick. But I, I mean. I, I compare and contrast with what I just read before I, I walked in this meeting that that there was going to be some movie theaters putting out movie tickets for three dollars a piece. Hmm. Right, that would be what we see today, and within five months, you may actually ha- see Disneyland in California open. Yeah, maybe not. Right, but I mean, you can start to forecast that Disneyland will be open. You can yeah. start to forecast that there will be more people on airplanes. You can start to think about that. 
Yeah. And so, you know, predicting the future is uh, impossible. But, you know, when we're looking at some of these different trend lines and you go call this the average, right? I mean, there's there's a be- better case, a worse case, you know, and there's some kind of data that all falls around that mean, um, assuming that's the average that we're looking at, right? Mm-hmm. Or, or kind of the more plausible case. Uh, either way, it looks like brighter days are ahead. I, I remember and and doing doing this podcast earlier this year, you know, from from my house and um, you know putting the image of a uh, tunnel and what it's like when you you know you go into the tunnel and uh, you, there's no light at the end, but you know that it's around the corner. And then you know as you as you keep driving, you can kind of see that peak of light at the end of the tunnel. And and it seems like we're right here, like just about to launch out of the tunnel. Um, which could, you know, mean a lot of positive stuff for our portfolios. Well, definitely. Um, and and one thing I would highlight is that the the emergence of a vaccine and the emergence of a new concept about people wanting to step out of their sides, uh, step outside of their homes, and spend capital on entertainment or something other than just simply DoorDash or go back to work, right? Or yeah, possibly right? go back to work. Are, are they back at the gas pump? Are they back at the um, at the airlines? You know, I mean, there's there's a lot of people have been relegated to you know going to school. My kids are still you know not not going to school and and so forth. So there's a lot of lubrication movement of the economy right. that, that's on that kind of transcends you know how many jobs are are focused on those different things. Right, so. and and I'll and I'll and I'll talk about that that in two phases. What we're talking about is a, a change into phase two of an economic recovery, which is typically concerned as the growth phase. Mm. So we move from despair to hope. Hope scenes large asset prices moves that is largely due to multiple expansion. And as you move from the hope phase of a bull market, you move into the growth phase. And the growth phase is where you typically see earnings growth, revenue growth, and you have numbers that effectively catch up with the massive multiple expansion that we've seen. And so um, that doesn't come without some additional volatility, right? Things, expectations will change. Um, You'll see... um, a lot of the wonderful things that we've thought about um, certain particular companies that are really good in a pandemic that maybe aren't so good in the post-pandemic. And so there'll be um, a juggle over the next three, six, nine months where um, we start thinking about um, pandemic names versus non-pandemic names. And I think that'll be a really exciting point of phase two of the market. And that market has legs that tend to be it tends exciting to be... or scary, depending on what you have in your portfolio. I think there's a rude awakening in for a lot of investors out there that have looked at, you know, foolishly what we do right all the time and say, hey, here's what's worked. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to get rid of what hasn't. I'm going to put all my money in what's worked really well over the last 12 months. Mm-hmm. And if you can, you know, repeat that cycle till broke. Right. And so I think that, you know, it is a different type of uh, of market that we're looking at after that vaccine is distributed and, and we get back to business. Yeah, very true. It'll be something. Um, and, that... and certainly if we see any movement in inflation and interest rates, um, this could all couple to be something. I, I don't want to use the word nice. It's not coupled nicely. It's mm-hmm. a potentially scary thing on the horizon there for some. But um but anyway, so we're we're excited. Yeah, I mean, if you think about where we are today, twenty six percent of the market's fixed income in in whether it's treasuries or corporate is actually negative yielding debt. Yeah, uh, we've lived that way since about fifteen or sixteen, where we've had a large percentage of fixed income securities actually have negative yielding debt, and that has a dramatic impact on us here in the United States. Even though we don't have negative yielding debt, 
because it keeps demand for the dollar very high, mm -hmm. which keeps demand for our treasuries very high. And equities. And equities, but it keeps our yeah. rates tamped down. And so as yeah. we see that start to unwind, um, you'll, you'll see some pretty big changes in the market. And um, I, I think we're, we're happy to, to look forward to those happy days, honestly. So let's talk about a change outside of the market. Right. And so this is a, a term that you coined yesterday and, and setting up this agenda is the death of small business. So so what are your thoughts on that, Luke? Well, I think um, it all it all revolves around access to capital. So companies right now that are in the stock market and have strong, strong balance sheets with access to um, larger liquidity pools and fixed income, um, you've seen them do better in the markets. They have a larger balance sheet to withstand a loss of revenue. So think about some of the largest hotel chains or the largest restaurant chains and all the way down the line where those particular companies would have savings and a balance sheet to weather um, a gap in, yeah. in financing. Whereas you have small businesses um, who probably all of us have seen over the last six to nine months where they've had to have customers outside, have customers inside, uh, put a lot of capital to try to work with different government government regulations. And most honestly, those those businesses probably do not have a substantial balance sheet to withstand a one in 100 year pandemic. And so I think as we move forward one year out, three years out, five years out, I think we'll continue to see the struggles from small businesses all around us. And that's I think that'll end up being a, a really sad byproduct of this pandemic with all this excitement about um, earnings and market improvement and everything that we've posted. Um, I think we'll continue to see that effectively the batteries of small business have been worn down to almost zero. And so as we move into the growth phase of the market, um, will those batteries go negative? Do they have enough capital to grow? How long will it take them to grow? And I think that that will create um, two different phases of the market. We have the market that's public with a lot of capital, and we have the unfortunate small businesses who have really lost out in this environment. So remind me to come back to the future of small business and and what that means for us and the economy and the consumer. But you know, I did want to put this in perspective because this is something that continues to be such a disconnect of you know what we saw in the pandemic with so many people not going to work, businesses going out of business, having the worst quarter on record ever, um, and somehow the stock market kept going up. And that enigma just didn't seem to connect with most folks. And so, you know, when we look at uh, the, the, the country, right? So according to JP Morgan, we have, I think this is 2018 data, we had 28.7 million businesses in America. Um, 99 point something percent of those are small businesses, right? So most business in America is small business. 40% of those companies make less than $100,000 a year. 80% hmm. uh, of all small businesses don't have any employees, right? Mm -hmm. And so when we think of like, who are these small businesses, right? And these entrepreneurs and business owners, um, you know, you're gonna, you're gonna get a lot of service professionals in there and that group also, right? If you think of, mm -hmm. you know, a real estate broker or agent or something like that. Um, and, and so just because they don't have any employees doesn't mean that they don't provide you know, livelihoods for contractors mm -hmm. and other people that they employ in, in operating their business. And they're really important, but 40% of them are making a hundred thousand dollars or less. And if I think about that in terms of value, right, if we're looking at the stock market, one of the things I was thinking about is, you know, as the stock market goes up and all these businesses fail, how is that? Well, so 
look, if you're a small business, you're making a hundred thousand or less, right? The value of that company typically is going to be a half, you know, six months to 24 months of your revenue. Sure. Right. And so let's just say they're, they're worth a hundred thousand dollars each, mm -hmm. each. So I think 40% of that, that's about 12 million of these small businesses, mm -hmm. right. Are mm -hmm. worth a hundred thousand dollars or, or $1.2 trillion. Mm -hmm. Okay, so 40% of the small businesses, 12 million small businesses, that's 1.2 trillion. Mm -hmm. Okay. And if you look at any one of the top five companies, mm -hmm. right, it's equal to or greater than 40%, right? I think it is. I think Apple is over $2 trillion. Right. Right. And so that would be that that is much greater than 12 million small businesses. So when we look at the stock market, right, especially the names in the S&P 500, you take those top five names from a market cap perspective, and it's about $7 trillion. Mm -hmm. And if that, that goes up by 15%, that equals 40% of all small businesses. That's right, right. And so, you know, um, so I think that's important to realize, and I think this is going to dovetail into our next segment about antitrust, right? But, you know, you, you, when, you, when you're looking at small businesses and them having the struggles and you look at these companies and how's the stock market going up, that's going to help, you know, give you some comparison of where the wealth is and, and certainly why you want to own companies in your portfolio and be an owner of those companies. Well, right? and, and certainly, and, and as we think about 2021, we also talk about a change in leadership. That's happening in the stock market. That's also happening in small business. So we can't look at all of the closed businesses in isolation. There's also been a lot of new businesses that have started. And there's been capital from the government to help those businesses start with new business loans and PPP. And those new businesses will have a different flavor to them based on all the experiences that we've had in COVID and some changed behaviors. I yeah. think there's a lot of things that we've done um, over the last nine months that I'd prefer to not do again, but I think some of them are going to be around for the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years, and new businesses will spawn out of um, serving customers in ways that we didn't used to do prior to pandemic. Yeah, and I, and I think that's important to note. I mean, the uh, American business, America is still a great place to have a small business, and we're, you know, that's part of the stimulus, and what we're trying to do is to provide that access to capital. Um, and, and maybe there's bankruptcy proceedings, there's reemergence down the road, but I mean, the entrepreneurs and business owners that I know that own and operate small businesses, many of whom are going through this reinventing process mm -hmm. of themselves or have fallen on tough times, they're not going away. Mm -hmm. right? The American entrepreneur and business person is, is going to uh, reemerge. Many of them are going to e-commerce and having a lot of success. Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, there's a bright future ahead for many entrepreneurs and small businesses, you know, with when you look at the platforms by Etsy and eBay and Shopify, right? And and even Amazon that provides access to these these nimble entrepreneurs, small business owners to really create a lot of personal wealth and, and wealth for their families and employees. So yes. however, uh there is some news in the headlines today, yesterday, the day before, and probably the days ahead about antitrust. So I think it was important that we add this to the topic of the Presidio perspective today. And I'm sure there'll be more discussion about this. But Luke, do you have a couple comments about what's going on right now? Um, well, the, the, the simple thing is, is that Facebook feels like they're being attacked by Apple. Apple feels like Facebook is using their, their platform to provide too much insight into our personal lives. Any of you who have participated in social media or potentially turned off your social media can probably think about that right now. 
And I think generally speaking, we're just seeing a lot of saber rattling um, from our government, uh, government officials because we have a lot of really strong, successful businesses that are having a lot of power. And so that's something that I think we're just going to have to get used to um, for the near future and the long term until we see um, probably a change there. And I don't know what that looks like. And I'm I'm not making a guess on that. It just seems like that we'll see senators um, in front of microphones like this pointing fingers and saying, don't do that to all the large companies out there. Did you see the consortium 38 attorney generals brought suit against Google this morning? <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't. <laughs> yeah. And and I mean, this was after another lawsuit they were hit with, I believe, in Texas the, the day before, um, you know, for for unfair trade practices and, you know, controlling the Internet search. Right. And unfair uh, practices towards other companies that want to match you with a consumer like an Angie's List or something mm-hmm. like that well, and not not providing them the uh, primo real estate on, on their site and so uh-huh. forth. So and, and what seems thematic about this is as. A senator or as the government moves forward and points their finger at one particular business, that business then comes out and points the finger at everyone else in that large cohort of those four or five large names. And so I just feel like that that is just going to bounce off each other for the near term. And um, we'll just have to see what happens there. Those businesses are powerful. They're probably going to continue to grow, but we're going to have to get really comfortable. I guess what we've done is we've gotten rid of one administration's um, loud tweets and now we're just going to get antitrust tweets um, yeah, for all the others. That could be, <laughs> you know, and, and I hope that this is, uh, and I believe it's spurring a conversation that needs to be had. Uh, you know, these companies are going to continue to accrue wealth. So at some point, we know that the antitrust and the breakup is going to occur. Mm-hmm. These companies aren't going to become smaller, I think, on their own, the way things are going. So whether it's now or four or five years down the road, I, it's kind of almost impossible to imagine that that doesn't happen, right. that there isn't a breakup of these companies and there isn't some antitrust uh, regulation that's going to change the way that they do business. But I think us as, as a society gets to have a conversation that really needs to be had. Uh, and I hope that this brings about some honesty and and all the finger pointing is, you know, was part of it, but it, hopefully it allows us to listen to the other side and kind of come up with some conclusions. You know, I think if you asked everybody listening and tuning into this, you know, do you want, you know, Facebook following you around or Big Brother to know where you are and all your buying habits and tracking what you're doing? I think most people would say, no, I don't want that at all. I want to have privacy. Right. right. Um, and then if you said, OK, so in doing so allows only very large corporations to uh, market to you and will really hurt the local grocer or small business down the street. Right. That now doesn't have access to that data. Mm-hmm. And then do you have an opt in? And I'm just theorizing. Right. Uh, like, is there an opt in? Like, I would like to support small business button. I would like to support health food stores. Mm-hmm. I would like to support local gyms or public schools. You know, what What are the things that I as a consumer support and actually I'm interested in? I'm interested in healthcare products, vitamins or nutrition or diet. And so I want whatever social media or Google platform to send me advertisements if I'm, that's how it's all paid for. Right. Um, right. Send me the, the advertisements that I am interested in seeing. And especially if those like support a, a local business, like, I hope that those are the kinds of conversations we might get to in all of this. Right. It, it sounds like you're talking about control. 
that you would like to have control of your data versus someone else. Well, the the, the opt-in to provide access, right? Mm -hmm. And so it, right now it's all being shared. And, I, and mm -hmm. it seems at least we were discussing, and we don't have time to get into all of it right now, but the, the Apple and Facebook kind of square off was who controls, they're, they're arguing over who controls the consumer, right? Mm -hmm. Who controls us? And it's kind of like this all or nothing and it's like, well, what if we had the ability to opt in to say, you know, I do support small business, et cetera, mm -hmm. and, and I'm going to give you my permission versus just cutting you off. So, mm -hmm. um, again, we could talk about these things and we will talk about these things in great detail in the years ahead because they're not going away. Um, Luke, it's good to get back on, on camera with you. Great. And get, the new set, I don't know if anybody noticed, all the new uh, technology yeah, and hope new you, set. Hopefully you outside. can't hear the traffic. Hopefully it's not too loud, right? <laughs> uh, but, you know, it's COVID, so being outdoors is really important, right, Luke? So, oh, um, yeah. So uh, also, uh, we have our, our next episodes are going to come in the new year in 2021. Uh, so we hope you'll tune in. I believe it's uh, January 7th. So stay, new, stay tuned for that. Please subscribe. Hit the button to subscribe to our YouTube channel so you make sure you don't miss an episode. We're going to upload these. So whether you catch them live or you catch the replay, just subscribe to our channel. You always hear the content we're putting out. Many of you have been reading Luke's quarterly letters. He has another good one coming up uh, in January. He kind of held back on what he wanted to talk about today because he's got some good stuff for you. So I know a lot of you enjoy that um, and what's coming ahead. I think signing off for 2021, you know, or... I can't sign off 2021 yet. I mean, so, <laughs> since we're signing early. off, can you can you tell me what the year's like? Yeah, right. Please. Um, <laughs> you know, we're there was a lot of valuable lessons that were learned in 2020. Um, I think you know, if I'm going to stick to my lane and talk about wealth management and portfolio management, I think a lot of you drew some very valuable lessons from 2020, and you should commend yourself. Uh, you you went through a really difficult, challenging time as an investor, and you had a range of emotions. Uh, many were unpleasant, and you really had to have faith and confidence that this was all going to work out. When everything that you were looking at and everything that it was being that was being shown to you, certainly in the media, was suggesting the exact opposite. Uh, and there were some very challenging times, followed by maybe some very uh, uh, exciting times. And that's part of investing. And so we draw these valuable lessons during these times and we use those to be more profitable in the future, to make better investment decisions with our advisors. Um, so I think that all of us at this point can look back and, uh, and, and know that we have emerged as a wiser, smarter investor uh, with more experience, certainly in some battle scars that will serve us well in the coming months and years and decades ahead. Because uh, there will be challenges and it's not going to be coronavirus. There's going to be new challenges that we're going to face. Many of those we, we touched a little bit upon today, but we'll be talking about in our episodes ahead. Great. Luke, Thank fun, you man. I'm good. looking forward to Me getting too. this going and uh, doing this on a frequent basis. Thank you, everyone. Want to wish you the happiest holidays and a happy new year. Happy Here's new to year. a new year for all of us. Uh, thank you for joining us. I'm Dustin. This is Luke Jacobson. Good to be with you.
international equity markets as represented by 21 major MSCI indexes from Europe, Australia, and Southeast Asia. The Barclays U.S. Aggregate Bond Index is an unmanaged benchmark index composed of the U.S. securities and treasury, government-related, corporate, and securities sector. It includes securities that are of investment grade quality or better, have at least one year to maturity, and have an outstanding pair value of at least $250 million.